This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. together listeners. I am so excited to have today's guest on the podcast. His name is Shanu Matthew, and he is an absolute expert in sustainable investing. But more importantly, he is like the meme king of the carbon emissions chatter. Um, That's actually how I found him. (laughs) Has anyone ever called you a meme king before? (laughs) No, but I like that nickname. I'm going to stick with it. I love it. I love it. Um, So I wonder if you can just kind of get us started by giving, you know, the good together or audience a little bit of an intro about yourself and sort of how you got interested in sustainable investing and we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Um, so thank you for that uh, you know, introduction. You know, In terms of my work and how I got involved with sustainable investing, my career has predominantly been in financial services, spanning roles in corporate finance and investment management. Uh, the climate change component of it actually was something that started off as a personal passion and then eventually bled into my career. Um, and it started in 2014 while I was an undergrad, um, you know, learned more about the issue of climate change and, and you know, how massive of a problem it is, but also how big of an opportunity it represented. And so, you know, since kind of 2014, when the IPCC AR5 report came out, I pretty much tried to self-network and self-teach myself as much as possible. As you as you see, I, you know, I tweeted a lot, I wrote a lot, I reached out to different academics, entrepreneurs, policy people, um, and over time have built up, you know, a good network of, of folks and have, have served in different capacities as judges or mentors for different climate tech accelerators or competitions. And and I think over that time, I've been able to build this expertise. So then when a role popped up that needed someone that knew investing and finance, um, but also had that expertise in climate, I jumped all over it. And so that's what I've been up to uh, since July of last year. And I'm happy to get into more details about what that means at a functional level. That's awesome. And I love that you were able to take sort of a personal passion for wanting to you know, help fight against climate change and not only bring it over into your career, but think about it from a systemic point of view. I think our podcast focuses a ton on what individuals can do, but we get so many questions all the time about the roles of larger corporations, bigger companies, governments, et cetera, in climate change. So that's what I'm really excited to talk about because honestly, like that, that is what your, your meme is about actually. And this is like one of the, you know, one of the few times where I wish that there was a visual to go along with this podcast, but listeners, we will include a link to Shanu's meme in the um, show notes. But essentially, I think most people are probably familiar with the Spider-Man pointing meme where there's like Spider-Man is surrounded by all the other Spider-Mans and they're, they're, they're pointing at each other. Um, so at the center of that meme, it's like everyone's trying to point. But basically, I would guess I would say the thought of it is that 
everyone wants to blame everyone else on how to lower their emissions and the governments are pointing at each other, consumers, companies. I'm probably like not doing the best job describing it verbally, but <laughs> to me, it was like just funny. Like it, it was basically passing the blame amongst everyone. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think you, you hit it on the head. I mean, it was meant to be a little bit cheeky, but I, I think in this, uh, in this space, you typically see this the velocity of information that comes out is, is really hard for most people to process. And oftentimes it, it tries to attribute, you know, a huge amount of emissions to a particular topic or a party. Um, and then we kind of end up in this environment where everyone is consistently pointing at a worse offender um, yes. or, or someone with, with someone else that has a bigger responsibility as well. And instead of actually taking action and kind of getting your own house in order, we're, we're spending all this time in a, in a circular motion of saying, well, how about X, Y, Z, or how about that person that does this or, should this government and I think uh, it was just more to we should eventually be trying to make sure that we're pushing people to action because that's what matters because you know we have 50 billion tons that we have to get to zero and so there's a lot of work to be done and so we need less blaming and more action yeah absolutely and so you know I actually happened upon this meme because in my I mean it went viral there were I mean I don't even have the statistics in front of me but I mean it was retweeted commented I mean, thousands and thousands of times um, and I'm curious to know like why do you think it blew up the way it did? Like, how did you, what, what made you create the meme, I guess? Yeah. I mean, it was born out of the frustration that I just spoke to in terms of just consistently seeing more and more rhetoric and narratives and articles about who to blame and, and yeah. the different tension between parties and less about the actual solutions, which is where I think we should focus our time. And you brought it up earlier, right? Climate change, you know, the more time you spend with it, you realize how nuanced it is. Like most of modern society today was built and industrialized and modernized as a result of, you know, burning a lot of emissions. And, and now yeah. we realize that as a tremendous negative externality. So we need to focus on how to fix it. So it's less about, I guess, I mean, attribution is important just so we understand our sources and where to work most effectively. But, um, you know, it's more about how do we fundamentally change that, create a new economy that's you know safer greener fairer and more sustainable and so i think i think it it, re it resonated with a lot of people just because everyone that works in this space is is probably so used to seeing xyz article come out and then misinterpreting it or getting blamed at one point in their own in their own career or in own personal lives and so i think everyone it was just it was probably a collective frustration or exhaustion um and that probably just resonated with a lot of folks yeah, that that kind of led me to my next question, which was like, what was the overall reaction? I mean, like, I know I hearted it. I can't remember if I responded to it. I felt like people were just kind of doing the whole like raised hand emojis, like thank you, preach kind of thing. Is that mostly what you got? I mean, I'm sure you probably also got some some trolls too, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you said that because I always find that the internet and Twitter, especially, is is a choose your own adventure type of situation where yes. yeah, you had some folks retweeted and be like, yeah, see, like net zero and emissions are are, are worthless to focus about. And I was like, that was definitely not my point. Um, yeah. But you know, there are were a lot of other people saying yes, absolutely. I, I think there's a few you know commentary around the fact that it was like we need. A lack, there's a lack of coordination. We need just true global leadership to step up and and start doing things and letting their actions evidence their efforts on this topic. And I thought like that is the core message uh, that I would hope that most folks get when they when they think about that issue. Yeah, and I mean it's it's so funny. You're right. People will take one thing and go off on so many different tangents. We see this with Brightly social media all the time, where we'll post something about maybe Meatless Monday, and then you know we get we get mostly praise, and then we get praise from some people that are like, "Well, every day should be meatless," you know, and it just like kind of turns into 
just a whole nother conversation. And so you're right. I, um, you know, I would, I would not be surprised if some people maybe didn't quite get the message you were trying to send and kind of took it on their own. But I feel like, you know, bringing it back to, um, the thought of re-examining like the concept of net zero emissions is really, really important. Um, and I, one thing that I loved that you did after the meme was you responded in your same thread with some highlights from this year's McKinsey report. So I love that because it's like you, you kind of followed up the meme with data and you, you, you pointed out some specific points, but tell the audience a little bit more about that. Like what, what struck you about um, this year's McKinsey's report? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the report you're referencing talks about, you know, McKinsey's approach to, to what is necessary and vital for the transition to net zero to occur at the speed at which we need it to occur. And it's fundamentally rooted in, in the fact that it's a system level problem. And so you need system wide solutions that span policy, technology, governance, uh, et cetera. And, and what I like about the the frameworks that approach it in that holistic lens is it really addresses it correctly, where it's, you know, in isolation, you could probably have some great things and good progress. But in order to move at the scale we need to, I mean, the systems that we're talking about are so large, right? Energy is the single largest industry on the planet. And that's just one of like the five core challenge areas within climate change. So, you know, in terms of the report, like they actually have these nine pillars um, and it's across three main categories, physical building blocks, economic and societal adjustments, and then government institutions as commitment. And what it does is it breaks down in each of those individual buckets. What are the current solutions that we have? And what are the guiding questions you should be asking the relevant stakeholders um, in order to enact system-wide change? So I'll give, you know, a few anecdotes, but like on the physical building block side, it's about technology innovation and the ability to create, you know, at scale supply chains and infrastructure. On the economic and societal adjustment side, it's making sure that we have the right financing structures and capital allocation strategies and we can manage the demand shift from traditional goods to more sustainable goods. And then from a governance institutions and commitment yeah, side, I mean, it's that's you know, having the appropriate standards and laws in place and having commitments between public governments and private companies. Um, and so if you think about where we've made the most progress in, in, in climate change and some of the technologies needed, like, for example, like solar and wind or, you know, electric vehicles, you know, you really had all three of those buckets really firing in, in unison in order to make the change as quickly as we did. Right. I mean, in the solar wind side, you have government funded R&D bringing down the cost curve. You had certain government financing vehicles, such as like government backed that, um, as well as, you know, tax credits for building different types of assets. And then you also had, you know, um, broad support from municipalities and other public companies to s sign deals with these solar and wind plants, which is power price agreements. But it, ultimately, you, you know, you had a, this whole coordination between all these relevant stakeholders and parties that allowed an industry to, to, be, to emerge and become the more sustainable option. So I think you, you need frameworks like that because we ultimately don't know what a, a net zero energy energy system or world looks like, but you need to be asking the appropriate questions and, and and solution set across all these different components. And I think that's what the McKinsey report did quite well that you sometimes don't see if you don't approach it holistically. Yeah. And I love that the way you framed this as well, which is like, who is really responsible for lowering global emissions? Like, I feel like that's kind of what people are poking at and trying to get at with your meme. And when you think about the way McKinsey broke this down and the way you just explained it to me, it's like, I mean, there's no one system responsible for lowering global emissions, right? It's a it's a really giant problem. There's mm -hmm. different ways that we can go about it. Um, but I would guess like, you know, once you once you get to that point where people start to better understand these systems, like tell me, tell me a little bit more about like how in general we can um, as a society start to reach net zero emissions by 2050. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I think you hit it on the head. So, I mean, it's going to require everyone, right? I mean, to answer your question, who's really responsible? I mean, it's ultimately everyone that you know has a presence on the on the planet and has any type of footprint. I mean, that's not to discount the fact that there are players involved that have larger influence and in, in dollars and, and and the ability to enact system wide change, being like corporations or, or national governments. But I mean, ultimately, if you think about systems, they're made of their individual parts and you know, the people that we elect to represent in government are people that we each individually vote for and corporations where you decide to work and where you decide to spend your money. That's ultimately how you can influence some of these companies. But in terms of like overall systems-wide decarbonization, I mean, there are five main like challenge areas. I mean, it's ultimately industry, uh, transportation, agriculture, energy, mm. buildings. And so like across each of those different components, we need a fair amount of, you know, to deployment in terms of deploying more sustainable solutions, as well as you need the appropriate policy incentives, whether they're regulatory requirements and or tax incentives. And then you also need, um, you know, consumer willingness to purchase these goods or, you know, customer willingness for your company. So I think you need a lot to happen. And I don't know how much detail you want to get into in terms of breaking down each individual component, but ultimately it's not just a matter of, you know, one new law or a a company offering one new product. You ultimately need, um, you know, a lot of different changes and this is going to take some time. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you're right. We could go into each one of those and probably, we could probably talk about this for five hours, <laughs> but I guess in terms of, you know, your perspective from where you sit in the sustainable investing land, like what is it, you know, that interests, um, you know, investors when they think about, you know, wanting to do good for the planet, but also return, you know, some, some nice, nice profits back to shareholders. Like, what are you looking at? What it, what is the market doing? Like, you know, what how how are you marrying the two concepts of, you know, capitalism and climate change? Like, how is that going? <laughs> <laughs> A hot topic, right? Um, yeah, right? I, I think so I mean the way that I I bifurcate my role is into two core categories. So on on the former, it would be climate related analysis and integration into the investment process. So to your point, I think we we acknowledge that the, you know the world's changing very rapidly as a result of climate change and you know global coordination to reach net zero emissions and as a part of that you're starting to see um, you know different laws changing consumer preferences different technologies that are being introduced um, and as fundamental bottom up investors we need to be aware of those trends because they're going to impact every company that we own directly or indirectly uh, you know that could be transition risks physical risks on the opportunity side it could represent new products or sectors that are now investable um, and so you know half my job is understanding how that impacts the existing companies that we operate in or, or our portfolios um, and then tracking those changes over time and then the second point, or the, I guess the other half of the job, is identifying these new sectors and markets, right? I mean, so for some of the stuff that we're talking about doesn't exist today, or doesn't exist at scale, and we're talking about entirely new companies and sectors uh, that need to exist, and there will be companies that are delivering, uh, you know, the growth in those markets. And I think that's our goal is to hopefully systematically, systematically identify, you know, who are these providers, and can we actually invest in them early enough when they're, you know, trying to reach scale and be a long-term capital partner and, and understand you know, their overall impact on the world and decarbonizing the globe. So, I mean, if you think about it in different sectors like solar and wind, um, if you think about what's going on in the automotive sector with the transition to electric vehicles, if you think about, um, you know, different things going on in like uh, waste to waste of value, such as like renewable natural gas, uh, there's all these different spectrums of new technologies and sectors that are just waiting to to be tapped by investors. That's so interesting. And yeah, you, you totally answered my question in terms of wanting to understand, yes, is 
you know, it's it's a dual pronged, um, you know, approach, which is yes, taking existing companies and getting them to bake sustainable practices into the way they operate. But then, yes, you're also doing work in, in terms of understanding new technologies, new startups who are looking to scale different um, technologies to better help you know, fight back against climate change. And I, I find that fascinating. I'd also say that, um, you know, a lot of people ask me specifically, like, why Brightly took on venture capital and sort of like why we decided to scale in this way. And I'm a really big believer in, you know, funding these projects at scale. Like, I think we've all seen amazing, um, you know, community initiatives or companies that are are doing things great, but they they do it from a really small perspective. And that's not to say that small actions don't matter. But when we think about companies specifically, I do think there needs to be more appetite really from investors to to fund these companies who are trying to, you know, make a difference at a scalable way. So what would you say, like, has the has the conversation or at least maybe the interest shifted in recent years? Like, are investors now saying, like, you know, number one, I want to do more of this type of investing? And what about number two? Like, are they going back to their companies and saying, like, hey, guys, you have to get into this? Like, how, how is that going? Yeah, I mean, I think it really differs, and I can't speak for for other competitors or other firms, sure. but I think I think in general, right? If you think about sustainability, it, it's a mega trend that's going to be one directional. I think you you have it both from a client perspective as well as just a general global perspective. This is an issue that consumers of all ages care about. This is something that governments are all trying to grapple with, um, and, and it's whether your feelings about it or not, I mean it's generally a trend that's going to only continue to grow in importance in our opinion, especially as we continue to, I guess, a lack of progress on, on reducing emissions. I think these issues become more important because until we reach zero emissions, right, the climate won't stabilize. So I think part of it is just the recognition that, you know, if you're not really moving on these things, you're not really being a a good steward of capital. And then like, as investors, you don't want to invest in a company that's not thinking about these issues pragmatically or at a societal level and they're ultimately selling these products into the world. So I think that shows a, that you you know you probably need to adjust your your worldview or at least understand how it impacts you uh, even if you don't think it's super direct. And so I think that's part of the component and the other element too is that a lot of the growth is going to come from from these industries, right? I mean, if we think about if we think that these commitments are going to be met and and that people are going to invest serious time and dollars and vote with their you know, dollars and feet on these stuff. And that's where the growth is going to be. Um, and I, I do think it's important to your point that you, you made a good point. I think ultimately you need to do, have these things at scale and broadly available in order to be successful. And so I think that, you know, if you're able to make the case that it, it's it's leading to additional market share or additional profits, and you actually allow these companies to participate in this newer, more sustainable economy, I think that's where it becomes self-sustaining, which is arguably what we need, right? Yes. Um, so if we do it at a small scale, um, you know, it, it's great. And again, I don't want to discount that, but we all ultimately need everyone in the world to buy into this uh, philosophy. So I think the more examples you have of people bringing these products to markets and them being premium or cost competitive um, and, and allowing those to flourish is where we really make meaningful progress in the climate change battle. Did you know that pollinators, we're talking about birds, bees, and insects, contribute to one in three bites of the food that we eat every day? When I heard that statistic, I was pretty floored, especially when we think about how many pollinators, including bees, are currently experiencing declining populations worldwide. When you're out shopping, I've got a new certification and product for you to look for. 
Be Better Certified is a new pollinator conservation eco-label developed by the Xerces Society to better promote pollinator conservation in agriculture. The Be Better production standards are science-based and field-tested, and they guarantee that the actions farmers take are promoting pollinator well-being. Previous listeners know we're big Costco fans over here at Good Together, and there's a product there that recently got the Be Better certified label that you can look out for. Silk Organic Almond Milk is the only Be Better certified almond milk, and it's only available at Costco. If you're looking for an organic, plant-based alternative to traditional dairy milk that tastes great and is created with the utmost care and attention paid to our pollinator friends, then pick some up the next time you're shopping at Costco. We need it to happen yesterday, right? (laughs) So it's kind of like, you know, there's a timeliness aspect of this too, where, you know, we really can't afford to to, you know, think on this anymore, like we need action. And so I, I think it's really interesting. And that I, when you were talking, it kind of made me think of another point around, you know, existing behemoths who have kind of gotten us um, in some respects into this mess, you know, uh, fossil fuel, uh, you know, providers and, you know, plastic companies and all these things. And we get so many questions from our community about greenwashing, um, you know, happening on behalf of some of these companies. So like, um, you know, like from your own personal view, like how is how is the market responding to well the market and I guess you know consumers in general like how do you feel like people are responding to these bigger companies like saying oh, okay like maybe I'll wait into it like is it genuine like what, what do you feel like's happening from that perspective? Yeah, I, I think it definitely depends on the on which company you talk to, but yeah. I mean ultimately I think the, the one thing that I'm really encouraged by is the pace of travel. I mean the fact that yes. the, the types of conversations we're having and the type of exposure we're getting at you know with co- different companies is is you know a, a lot different than what it would have been two years ago. You have CEOs and CFOs asking questions about sustainability, what their peers are doing, how they can be more sustainable. I, and I think these things are being approached in good effort. I think the one thing that sometimes gets lost with consumers. Um, and even to your point about certain companies being responsible is that, uh, you know, I think, again, in general, the world has generates a lot of emissions because we previously haven't priced in this negative externality. If you think about some of the biggest companies in the world, um, you know, when you think about their emissions, a lot of the emissions come from what we call scope three, whereas your product's being used in the wild, right? So for example, okay. like an oil and gas company, it's when we burn gas to, to, to generate power or when you burn the gasoline in your car um, or, you know, use it for heating and cooling. And so I think that like people forget that the reason that those companies have large footprints is because their products are so ubiquitous in the real world. And so again, we need to fundamentally change how we, you know, we move things, how we grow food, how we generate our power. And it's not necessarily going to be fixed if just one company just stops producing something or, or, you know, tries to address it single-handedly, we need that systems level change. So I think the market is generally trying to understand, you know, where can companies actually meaningfully move the needle in their own operations and or in the public? Um, and then can are they addressing and deploying the appropriate dollars and effort required in order to achieve those outcomes? So um, to give you an example, right? I mean, one of the things that we, one of the examples we saw to, to bring this to life is like we've talked to consumer packaged goods companies and uh-huh. household products care companies, and you know, like for example, one of the things that some of these household product companies did was they actually removed a lot of emissions from their uh, you know complete value chain by 
creating laundry detergent that's able to be used in cold water versus hot water. Um, And that's because like, you know, when you end up using hot water, you have a typically, you know, a gas powered like water heater um, and that generates a lot of emissions. And then if you run a bunch of different loads like that, it's that adds it to be a lot of emissions for that company. So even just like doing things like that, where they identified, hey, we could actually remove a lot of emissions. And I think it was on the order of like 20 million tons over five years. Um, that actually adds up, right? So it's, it's about ident- making sure that companies are identifying the sources of our emissions, you know, identifying where it's controllable or not. And then are they deploying dollars to figure out how to reduce that in, in a way that, you know, actually strengthens their relationship with customers or at least strengthens their actual business performance as well. That's such a good example. And I'm also curious to know, like, are companies sharing these types of, um, I guess, like, wins with each other, right? Like, is, you know, a P&G sharing that with their competitor if they're talking about laundry? Like, what is your experience from that? Like, are they, do they treat those things as, like, proprietary wins? Or are they trying to be like, hey, rest of industry, come catch up with me? No. So actually, this is something that, you know, I think investors are are very much encouraging companies to talk about because that's ultimately where we want the discussion to go is that if companies yeah. are doing a great job in helping their customers avoid emissions, whether it's actual consumers like yourself and I or other businesses, I think it's something that you want to really lean into um, and can actually represent growth for you. And again, as investors, that's exactly what we we want. And so it's not atypical at all right now for companies to disclose that. I think how they disclose it and the comparability of two different methods is, is really hard right now because companies kind of measure these things in different ways or might use different methodologies. And so that part's a little bit more challenging. But I'd say most companies that have some type of element of emissions avoidance with their products and services are really starting to lean into that marketing. Um, I think over time, the disclosure will get better in terms of like percentage of revenue or percentage of like capital expenditures that they're investing into these technologies will be broken out. But I think in general, people are leaning into the opportunity. And you know, even on the consumer side, if I, if I can give an additional data point, there's this uh, this one uh, publication that's from the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. They they have this metric called the Sustainable Market Share Index, where they track the growth of sustainability oriented consumer products versus traditional. And okay. the sustainable products grew 7.1 times faster than those that did that were not marked as sustainable. And then in 90% of the actual category, sustainability marketed products grew faster than the conventional counterparts. So I think companies are are, are aware that this is becoming a material issue for consumers. And even on the business side too, we hear all the time about, you know, we have XYZ company coming to us and we're their supplier and they're asking us, you know, what is your emissions or are there ways to lower your emissions because that factors into their emissions. And so I think uh, you are starting to see these companies ask these questions and realize it can be a real competitive differentiator if they're able to produce these things in more sustainable ways without impacting business performance or able to provide it at at the same cost. That's fabulous. Yeah, I I absolutely think that the more we see this knowledge sharing, the better. And then, yes, the more that consumers and also companies can take notice of what's actually doing better and and growing, the better we're all going to be. And actually, you know, I'm like so here for the cold water laundry, um, you know, situation. I love packaging, uh, you know, innovations. I'm so ready for somebody to come up with like a great alternative and scalable alternative to plastic bags. Like, Please, mm-hmm. let's get rid of that. So yeah, the more that I hear about companies innovating in packaging too, the more I get excited. Although you and I can probably nerd out about this all day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, packaging is, a, packaging is a really interesting one too, right? Because um, we very much have heard anecdotally from CEOs, I mean, one of the largest beverage companies in the world, um, that they'll follow where the consumer ultimately goes in re- with okay. respect to packaging. So I think you know companies track what consumers are ultimately 
deciding that they will pay up for or or, or that, that that really matters to them. So I think it's interesting to, to watch that one happen because packaging, like there are all these interesting considerations. Like if you look at a life cycle basis, uh, which means that from like the production of the raw material all the way to the actual like shipment to a consumer, um, plastics like ge- generally have lower life cycle emissions than like aluminum or glass. And that's largely because the energy use associated to make the aluminum or glass is higher that is something that can be fixed later on. And to your point, recyclability is a lot higher for aluminum and glass. So like, if you're thinking about like a circular economy future, you want to probably push people towards aluminum, but in the interim, there's like this conflicting point where on a life cycle basis right now, plastics might be a little bit better. And so you do have these interesting points where companies are trying to use data to, to ultimately make a case for X, Y, Z. But I think at the end of the day, at that point of we'll follow where the consumer wants to go. And if consumers really care about sustainability and are, voting that they want one type of packaging material. Um, I would I would bet that most companies are going to follow suit and understand that and track those data points. Yes. And I, you know, so we talk so much about voting with your dollars here on the podcast. And so listeners, like you just heard it right here, right? Companies at the, at the very highest level are looking to go where the consumers want them to go. And the other thing that I think is interesting about, you know, the Stern, um, NYU Stern report you talked about, or just a lot of the other data that you're consuming, it is actually proving that consumers are voting with their dollars. I think I've seen like lately some you know, kind of negative think pieces come out from journalists who are like, well, consumers say they want to spend more, but then they actually go and turn around and buy fast fashion. And so, of course, there's always going to be kind of a duality there, but people are absolutely, you know, they are starting to make these changes in their lives and they are starting to think about it too. And so I'm glad that there is data to back that up as well, because it's not just something we're saying is happening, right? Yeah, definitely. You, you do bring up a good point, though. So, like, just uh, I guess play devil's advocate. And, and, and so, I, I don't necessarily know if it's a negative thing, but the one thing that was brought to us by another Fortune 100 retailer was when you look at the survey data. I mean, the way that those questions are written is it's it's generally like a self perception question. It's like it's like, would you yes. choose the higher state? So, of course, most people are going to vote. Like, oh yeah, I would. Um, and I think this is an important point: is that when you get to a shelf, and if a product is like. Argue, you know, five, 10, 15% more expensive. And the only thing that differentiates it is a sustainability label that you don't understand or even know what it means. Um, I mean, I think it's reasonable that some consumers like choose not to go that route. Yep. And so I do think there's a fair amount of like consumer education that needs to happen and that, you know, we'd hopefully push companies to do more of because I think that people need to understand those trade offs and actually make them at the shelf because I think that you can't have some type of divergence between what someone says in a survey versus actually votes with a dollar. But to your point, I do think that NYU Stern evidence is the fact that this is increasingly becoming an issue. And if you look at it from an age perspective, too, right? Millennials and Gen Z uh, both also make this a very much core part of their value system and are definitely voting with their dollars a lot more than other generations. And that will only increase over time as they become a larger percentage of the overall you know, spending pie and labor force. Yeah, absolutely. And I I talk about this all the time where it's like, it's not just enough to be sustainable. Like you also have to have a really good product. And we've all done it where we've gone out and bought the more eco-friendly alternative and it doesn't work as well as we want it to. And so we go right back to the old one. Oftentimes we like throw out that eco alternative because it's not working for us. So I absolutely am a fan of making sure like anytime we talk about a product from a Brightly perspective, we make sure that we test it and that we actually believe in it before we go out and recommend it to our audience. Because I feel like there's not a faster way to turn somebody off of something than giving them bad advice. And they're like, cool, I tried the eco thing for a second. It doesn't work, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you hit it on the head. And I think that's why Brightly provides such a great service for consumers is because people are confused about the labels and they do want the usability. You can't sacrifice product and service quality uh, and or usability because otherwise this isn't going to work at scale. I mean, like, you know, God, God bless, there's an active community of, of people that are focused on sustainability. But if you think about the globe at large, right? I mean, whether it's for personal reasons or lack of education on the topic, not everyone's going to think that same way and that, that they want to vote for sustainability in totality. So you ultimately need the products to be better, cheaper, uh, or superior experience. And I think that that's how we get the systems level change that we need. So I think it's really great that you have a service that actually, you know, talks about usability and like, hey, we actually went out and tried this. So it's not just marketing. It's not just uh, XYZ, but we actually think this is a genuinely better product for you. And that's how you win at a global level. Um, and I guess like the other element that I, I don't know if we we're going to get into too is when you think about sustainability, I guess like the, the the heuristic that I thought was best was it was an Electrify Everything by Saul Griffith, who's the head of Rewiring America. Um, the ultimate way to think about sustainability, if you if you, you can't you know, keep up with like every different label, which is totally reasonable, is yep. uh, just ultimately think about the embodied carbon and carbon that you'll use in order to use the product over its lifetime. And then how many times you can actually use it. And you ultimately okay. want to solve for products that are very durable that you can use over a long period of time. Um, and so if you have goods that are, you know, like you're probably only replacing once every 10, 15, 20 years, those decisions in terms of the choice that you make are a lot more impactful than something that, you know, maybe has a lower turnover. But ultimately, if you are solving for products that have, you know, low emissions when when you use them and you can use them over longer periods of time, I think that's how you get to more sustainability at a, at a system level. Um, and I think that the branding associated around that is something that sustainability should absolutely lean into, to your point. I think sometimes people think about sustainability and the first thought is, oh, it's going to be less usable or, or less friendly. And what it really should be is the opposite, right? I mean, what is the justification for the average person says when they buy something higher priced, like for a shirt or XYZ? They say that they're going to use it a lot more. And they're going to have it for a lot longer because it's higher quality. That is what we should be leaning into for sustainability products because that's the exact same argument. Um, and that's the way to actually win that where it's intuitive and it shouldn't be a compromise in quality or user experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say that longevity and like price per wear and use per wear is one of the like sleeper hits of sustainability. Like it might not be super like, oh, made of like an innovative material, but, you know, oftentimes like, you know, an unpopular example of this would be, you know, a leather jacket versus, um, you know, a jacket that's made of something that looks like leather that's not going to last as long, right? Like, I think actually that the most eco choice of all these things would be to find a thrifted leather jacket, perhaps um, that that's had a long time and you can you can wear it longer. But yes, we we think about this all the time at Brightly, and you know one of the things that I've loved out of this conversation, and you know one that just surfaces every time we talk about anything on the podcast or at Brightly in general is the gray space, right? Like having consumers think more and more about like. What does the concept of sustainability mean to them? I love the the thought that you just shared around thinking about carbon and um, you know overall carbon production and um, you know the amount of emissions that that uh, product took you know to to create. I think that's really fabulous, and I I think to end, I mean, really, we you and I could literally talk about this all day, but I would suppose like to end the conversation or kind of bring it back, um, you know, to the concept of personal emissions. Um, you know, I had a question in here that I thought was was interesting, which is like, what are some myths or common misconceptions you might have even seen in your Twitter thread um, about the impact that individual consumers have on global emissions? Like, what are people confused about? Yeah, I think in terms of how I'd answer that question, 
and I, I again, I think all every little bit matters. So I, I de- definitely don't want to discourage people from doing uh, you know smaller tasks. But I think in on average, the average consumer probably overestimates w- the things that they do that have a broader emissions impact than the things that meaningfully can on a longer term systems wide basis. And what I mean by that is, if consumers you know maybe recycle their aluminum cans or you know reuse a bag once or twice, they might feel generally good about themselves but in terms of like the the most meaningful emissions impact that they can have is it's largely their actual like personal infrastructure and what i mean by that is like you know how you heat and cool in your home the the type of cooking stove that you have you know a vehicle if you have the ability to get an electric vehicle versus a for internal combustion engine um purchasing renewable energy or at least you know trying to procure renewable energy credits on a with your utility or like a green partnership i think those things are fundamentally a lot more important for systems level emissions. And if we get every person to focus on even just a few of those, it will lock in a lot more emission savings than, you know, some of the other tasks I just spoke to. Um, That being said, right, I I don't want to describe, I think ultimately every little bit helps, right? And I try to live my life to the extent that I can. But I think if people understood the importance of their actual personal infrastructure decisions, like I think that is how we really get long-term changes. Again, to that concept of locked in emissions, right? Those things that I just talked about from the infrastructure standpoint are installed for 10, 20, 30 years. So if we think about it at a systems level basis, like the more that we install the legacy products or the dirtier products, that locks in future emissions that we then have to somehow justify later or becomes prohibitively expensive later. And so if we can get people thinking about those things currently and installing those things sooner, um, the better it helps on a a global level. So uh, let me know if you want me to unpack that at all, but hopefully that answers your question. Yes. And honestly, I've not really heard it verbalized in terms of the personal infrastructure. I love that concept because you're right. When we are using things that are going to be around for much longer than maybe a t-shirt, um, it, it typically is going to matter a little bit more, especially when you think about energy. Um, you know, of course, our audience always likes to chime in and, and they're right to do so about accessibility and cost and expense and all of these things. So like, yep. we totally understand that like right now, Oftentimes, the most eco decision, especially from an energy perspective, is not necessarily the most cheap or accessible. And so I'm really excited for companies like those you invest in, um, you know, to continue to help bring that cost down and make it a better point from an accessibility perspective, right? Yeah. And I think so. so you hit a really good point, right? Because ultimately, you know, it comes down to affordability and you need to have it accessible to everyone because you don't want to price out. I mean, like you have lower income households that already spend disproportionately a larger amount of their dollars on energy and associated yep. infrastructure. So I don't mean to be insensitive to that fact. I guess the other point that I would make too is if you have the ability to do choose a more sustainable option, if it's not cost competitive, but you're able to absorb that cost, and obviously it's great that you can do it. But the other element too that I would think is, you know, consumers can have a super meaningful impact. Every person that you know, or that I know, um, whether it's themselves or friends and family, their coworkers, their colleagues, uh, that you have a sphere of influence and you can encourage people to do more sustainable things. You can, again, vote with your dollars and types of goods that you purchase. Um, And, you know, those all things add up at a systemic level when you have more and more people that buy into a way to do things and, or, you know, learn about their actual impact of purchasing XYZ thing or doing business with XYZ company. Um, And ultimately too, like, right, the one huge element of this is, and enabling that policy lever and everyone has the ability to vote at least in the United States here. Right. So, you know, that's a huge thing in terms of like your personal impact is finding representatives that share your values alongside, um, 
you know, what their position on climate change is. So I think like folks, even if you don't have the ability to maybe perhaps some, purchase some of that personal infrastructure that to your point might be more expensive, there are a lot of things you can do to encourage and motivate and enable good behavior and, and good climate change behavior uh, to the extent that you, you know, you can influence some of those different people in your sphere of influence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, like I said, I think we could talk about this forever. I, you know, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface on some of the, some of the topics we could get into. So I would love to potentially have you back <laughs> to talk even more about these types of issues. But, um, you know, we typically like to close the episode with the same question for each one of our guests. So I'm going to give it to you now. I think we've probably already answered it in different ways, but maybe you can come up with either a summary or even a new answer, which is like, from your point of view in your career and really, you know, what you're doing every day, what is exciting you the most about what's going on in the sustainable and ethical lifestyle movement right now? Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I'm just so encouraged by the level of talent of, of folks going to work on these issues. I mean, I, I can't speak enough to the fact when I first started looking into this space eight years ago, you know, the level of coverage, the level of people trying to work in the space was was so much lower. I mean, it is orders of magnitude higher. And I think, you know, we're in the sort of enlightenment type period where people really are understanding the the impacts of their personal decisions or where they go to work or the type of work that they're doing. And, you know, in the next five to 10 years, that's going to pay incredible, incredible dividends for the broader movement. And the other point that I'd make too, is you see, even within this space um, in my career, climate change is such a broad and all encompassing problem that, it, you know, people don't view it as a zero sum industry that, you know, everyone's looking for additional set of hands. So people are so generous with their networks, with sharing resources or giving feedback. And I think that's really hard to find, really rare to find across industries, especially coming from finance and tech backgrounds. Um, you typically have very competitive people, but I think I've been really encouraged by the, the paying it forward in the industry and in this like kind of lifestyle in these communities. And I think that that will pay incredible dividends again, because this is a systems level problem and we're going to solve it with everyone kind of doing their part. So I, I'm really excited about that. Absolutely. Me too. And I, I love that you brought it back to, yeah, the cooperation, um, sort of the, the mutual excitement that we have within the industry, because you're right. Like so many ones that you and I both have come out of are not like that. And so being able to be working on something that is making a difference, is helping consumers sort through things. It's just such a been such a rewarding experience for me personally. And I'm sure you could say the same about, you know, the the impact you've been able to have from a sustainable investing perspective. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to thank you again for for sharing some of your insights with our with our listeners. I know they're gonna love it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And yeah, hopefully look forward to, to being back on later. But yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you as well with your, your company and then the work that you guys are doing. I think it's incredible the community that you've fostered and, and having these discussions and sharing these resources is how we get to where we need to be going. So thank you uh, for having me on. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off all products in Brightly's brand new shop full of planet positive swaps for your home. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together together. 
So have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.